Today is Saturday, February 22nd, and I'm your host, Nick Seipel. We have a special bonus episode of Industry Focus for you today. A couple weeks ago, I sat down with Ben Hunt, author of Epsilon Theory. Ben brings a unique perspective on markets using game theory to analyze how narrative shapes investing behavior. Our conversation covers Ben's path from academia to investing, how common knowledge shapes markets, and even a little bit of Alabama football. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Ben Hunt is the creator of Epsilon Theory and CIO of Second Foundation Partners. After a decade-long career in academia, Ben began his investment career in 2003, going on to lead a hedge fund, and he's also co-founded uh, two technology companies. Today, over 100,000 professional investors read Epsilon Theory for its perspectives and insights into market dynamics. Ben Hunt, welcome, welcome to Industry Focus. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Uh, great to have you on. Uh, just, just, just off the bat, uh, I would like to go into your background. Uh, you're someone who came to finance late. I think I think you were 40 years old uh, when you got into yeah. the, the financial industry. How has that background in academia shaped how you view markets? You know, honestly, Nick. I, I mean, there there are some periods of time where I think it's it's good to, to I'll call it rise from the ranks and and be immersed in the. The, the myths and legends of whatever field that you're you're engaged in, uh, I think there are some periods of time when it was a good thing if you, you know, came from Wall Street um, for your for your career in in, in investing. Uh, I got to tell you that the last 15 years has not been one of those times. I think it's been one of the the, the real keys to, to whatever success I've had uh, in in market world is that I. I didn't have the traditional background of, you know, starting in Wall Street and and being immersed, like I say, in that buy, buy, buy mentality. It um, it sure served me in good stead, uh, you know, leading up to the great financial crisis and uh, and and afterwards as well. Absolutely, you talk about these times of change. Uh, early 2010s, you left. Uh, investing uh, at least at least your your fund and move to to start epsilon theory start writing about some of these changes that are going on in markets uh, you talk about uh, you know epsilon theory sees political and capital markets through the lens of game theory and history so when you talk about these changes that have taken place in the market uh, what led you to, to want to do this writing and to start epsilon theory and what are you focusing on what problems are you focusing on well look I, I, I started writing epsilon theory because my, my hedge fund couldn't make money anymore I mean, let's be honest, right? So we started the hedge fund in in '05, and we did great in '05. We did great in '06. We did great in '07. But you know, a lot of people did great in '05, '06, and '07. And by, and by great, I mean you know 20 percent, let's say. And then we did great in 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 '08, and that that really set us apart. So you know, we were up 20 something percent net fees and expenses, and that 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 really set us apart. Uh, and the the assets came flowing in. But I, you know, I I, I got to tell you, from March of '09 onwards, and anybody's had, you know, <laughs> a reasonable amount of time in markets knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's like you went to the wall and you flipped the light switch on our returns. We just flatlined, right? We 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 never lost money for our clients, and I'm I'm really proud of that. Uh, and that's 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 very important to me that we never lost money for our clients. But from March of '09 onwards, it was you know, single-digit returns charging, you know, the fees we charged. And it was, you know, pardon my language, I mean, it was bull****. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't intellectually honest what, what we did, and I, and I think we did it well, which was looking for catalyst and looking for, you know, longs and shorts or long-short equity. It just didn't work. It didn't work, and, and it, it didn't work for all the reasons that I think every active manager, every value investor, every quality investor has had to confront the, the, the simple and awful truth that for 10 now going on 11 years, what we do does not work. And so, you know, at the, the end of 11, uh, we gave all the money back to investors, uh, and you know, I started thinking about, well, well, how do you manage money in this sort of environment? Uh, you know, what has changed and what does work? That, that's why I started writing Epsilon Theory and trying to figure it out for myself. And, you know, a, along the way, the, the writing has struck a chord with a lot of people who are also trying to figure it out. That, that's what this whole community of Epsilon Theory is about, is, you know, 
just trying to figure, again, my language, figure this out. Um, because we don't, we don't have answers, but we are trying to develop a process. And we are trying to look in the right places uh, to figure it out. How do you manage money when capital markets have been transformed into a political utility? Right. And, and along those lines, you've talked a lot about how, uh, particularly as central banks became more involved uh, in markets, how the narrative uh, of central bankers or, or narratives have begun uh, to shape markets. Uh, was that, is that formative period post-2008, as central banks became more involved in the market, that, that really revealed the influence of narratives to you? Or wh- where, where did that revelation come from, that insight? Well, look, for, for me, this goes back to, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier, I was, I was a professor for 10 years, right? So this goes back for me more than 30 years. Uh, you know, I did my dissertation on this stuff and wrote a book on this stuff. And by this stuff, I mean unstructured data, uh, text, uh, the stuff we read, the transcripts of the things we hear, um, all of the messages that we are inundated with day after day after day, hour after hour after hour, nothing you're going to get from a spreadsheet, nothing you're going to get from a, you know, a Bloomberg output, right? But all of these messages that we hear on TV and we read on the web or in books or wherever, all of this unstructured data, my lifelong research project has been figuring out the rules of that. How, how can we measure that, and how can we measure the systematic impact it has on us human animals? Because we as social animals, we're hardwired to respond to this stuff. And it, it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by chance. It, it happens to us on purpose. And our responses to this are systematic and I, and I think can be both explained and predicted. So, so for me, this is a 30-year research project. This is my life's work to try to figure this out. And now I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to try to figure it out on the, the biggest stage and to apply it to the biggest game in the world, uh, which is the world of investing. Yeah, Ben, you've you've really started to leverage natural language processing tools to try to analyze how narratives are evolving in real time. You call that the narrative machine. Uh, can you talk yeah. about how that works and what value it gives for you? Well, this is, this is an old technology. Um, again, this is I was doing this thirty years ago, thirty plus years ago, and because natural language processing goes by that abbreviation NLP. This is not AI. This is not artificial intelligence. This is not machine learning. There's nothing fancy about natural language processing. At the core of natural language processing is just a very simple comparison. You're comparing a word or grammatical phrase in what we call a bag of text, you know, an article a transcript, and you're comparing that word to all the other words and all the other articles that you've collected around a certain topic. So the very simple comparison, you know, is this word, you know, overweight, do you see that word in, is that the same word as this word in this other article? Yes, no, all right, now compare it to the next article. It's not a complicated calculation. But you got to do an enormous number of them, right? So give you a you know, quick numeric example. To do this sort of analysis on a thousand articles, each article has got a thousand words, right? To compare every word in every structure, every grammatical structure to every other word in every other grammatical structure, that's a thousand factorial. That's half a trillion. <laughs> so what, what has changed over the last, really, four or five years is nothing about the underlying algorithms and you know, science of natural language processing. What has changed is now that we have massive computing processing power at our fingertips so that we can run these massive data matrix calculations essentially in real time, right? You can plug in to Amazon AWS. You can plug in to... Uh, 
you know, Microsoft Azure, this sort of, of utility computing power, it, it really is changing at least my world because of how I can do research that I couldn't dream of 30 years ago. So that's what we're doing. We're now kind of training this instrument of very quick comparisons of massive numbers of words and, and grammatical structures so that the computer can calculate how similar the language is that's shared across lots of articles. And it doesn't require any human intervention then to both visualize it and also to understand the structure of narrative. It's like, it's like I guess, in like in the the microscope was invented, let's call it in like 1650, right? So it'd be like it'd be like the first person who had a microscope and said, "Huh, I've got this, you know, slide. I'm gonna put a drop of of river water, Tim's river water, on this slide. I'm gonna look at it through the microscope." Because it's just water, right? I'm, I'm not expecting to see anything in that droplet of water. And then you look through the microscope and you go, whoa, there's a whole world inside that drop of water. Little things that I can't visualize with my eye, with the human brain, but with this instrument, I, what, what's that crawling around? And, you know, what, there's, again, there's this whole world. So I, I feel like that a lot of times because it's, 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 the, there's not a, it's not a new technology, but we've got new computing processing power, and it really allows us now to see this ocean of unstructured data, this ocean of words and messages that we know we swim in. We're just not able to see it. We're not able to, to comprehend it with our, you know, our serially processing human brains. So that that's why it's really exciting. That's what we do in our research is 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 we try to apply this technology to politics, to investing, uh to you know, how we how we consume any sort of information. And uh I got to tell you it's pretty cool and it's a lot of fun. So uh that's that that that's what we do, Nick. Absolutely. And you use this game theory uh framework uh, to analyze uh, markets and how things are going to play out. You talk about the difficulty of, of, of predicting uh, uh, how, how these interrelated uh, uh, interactions between, between narrative and people's reaction to them, uh, how it can be difficult to predict how, thing, how things uh, play out in markets. And, and one of the examples used to illustrate that is the three-body problem. Can you, uh, for folks who may not be familiar with your writing on that, uh, can you kind of unpack uh, that metaphor? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can. You know, before I do that, though, let me let me kind of back up a second and talk about game theory. I, you know, that was my that was my PhD, right? It's from and it's from Harvard, right? So it's you know, it's I've I've got this this academic bona fides in this in in this subject, but I hate to tell people, oh yeah, my field was game theory because it's kind of a joke now, right? Because <laughs> you know, people. You, you you say you're applying this, and people go, "Oh, game theory," you know, because it's because it's it is applied in such silly ways today. I, I mean, oh my God, you know, you read this stuff that, that somebody publishes. Let's now let's apply some game theory, and it it just it it just really makes you cringe, right? It really makes you cringe. But let me back up a second and and and, and kind of talk about game theory just just for a second sure. because it's really important when you talk about not being able to predict see the the whole study of game theory is about I'll use this ten dollar word you know finding equilibria and an and equilibrium is a balancing point it's 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 a point where the participants in a game each participant believes that it would not be to his or her advantage to change his or her position from where they are right now right that's an equilibrium I mean, it's a sticking point it's a it's a it's a point of stability in a system of interaction you know they say it takes two to tango well you know it takes two to play a game because the the whole idea of game theory the whole idea of strategic interaction is 
I've got to decide what to do, but my decision is contingent on what I think you're going to do. And I know that your decision on what to do is contingent on what I'm going to do. So we're, we're you know, it's like that, that Spider-Man meme where they're kind of both pointing at each other, right? Yep, that's my favorite meme <laughs> and, by far. Yeah, yeah, right. me too, me too. And so that's like game theory in a nutshell is that you're, you're two smart guys. You both realize that the other person is a smart game player also. You know, so what's the pattern of your strategic interaction? And, and what, you, what game theory can help you identify is an equilibrium, that balancing point where both players say, yeah, all right, I'm good with where we are. Um, now, the deal, though, is with most games, most games have multiple possible equilibria points. Right, so so the most famous one of these, you know, everybody knows a couple of games. You know, the Prisoner's Dilemma, right, which is the basic game under every, you know, police procedural that was ever written. You know, if you've ever seen an episode of, you know, any of the dozen cities that have an NCIS, right, there'll be an episode of Prisoner's Dilemma where they, you know, have one prisoner in one questioning room and one other. Everyone knows that game. And Prisoner's Dilemma actually only has one equilibrium, which is that both guys rat each other out. But there's another game that everyone knows, the game of chicken. And, you know, for my generation, it's Kevin Bacon and Footloose. For another generation, it'd be some other, something else. We all know what the game of chicken is, right? You're, you're driving your tractor towards the other guy's tractor, and the chicken is the guy who veers off first. Well, there are two equilibria in that game of chicken, either... You know, Kevin Bacon veers his tractor off first, or the other guy, I forget his name, veers his tractor off first. Both of those are stable sticking points because once one guy veers his tractor off, you know, you're not going to veer back onto the road and cause an accident, and vice versa, the guy who's not the chicken, he's not going to become a chicken, so that's, that's a sticking point, it's equilibria. Both players stick with what they decide to do. But you can't tell me which of those two equilibria. You cannot predict from any external characteristic, from anything you might measure, which of those two equilibria is going to happen. You can't say, oh, it's 50-50, because it's not. What I'm saying is that there are no odds on this. The whole act of trying to predict is... It, it just doesn't apply. It really doesn't apply. But we've been so trained to think, oh, we have to, everything we do has to try to predict some outcome. There's so many things in life where you cannot assign odds to them. You cannot decide, you cannot, again, to use the vernacular, create an expected utility matrix for something where you've got the, you know, the edge and the odds and the probability of something happening. So what do you have to do? Well, first of all, you have to realize that this is most of life, right? Most of life does not lend itself to prediction, and that the exercise of prediction is so often, I'd say mostly often, you know, a total waste of time and energy and breath. What you can do, though, is you can observe. You can watch. And you can react. You know there's going to be an equilibrium. And you know what that equilibrium is going to look like. The game of chicken, one player veers off to the other. So you know what to watch for. You know that one of these things is going to happen. And so you want to react when you observe which of these equilibria occurs. And it, it's so unromantic, and it's so much what your investors or other people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear that you're reactive. What do, what do you mean you're reactive? I mean... Anybody could be reactive. Well, actually, no. Very few people are appropriately reactive. I'm saying being reactive instead of trying to be proactive is the smartest thing you can do as an investor. And if there's one thing you get out of game theory, it's that, right? It's, it's that we should be observing more, observing more and predicting a lot less. That's, that, that's where it's at the heart of, of – you know, the research we do in looking at narrative, we're not trying to predict what narrative comes up. What we're trying to do is say, look, I know what the possible behavioral outputs of these, of these narratives are. I know what the equilibria are. 
we're going to watch, we're going to observe, we're going to see what comes to pass, and then we're going to react to that. It's a, it's a different way of looking at the world, especially the world of investing, but it's, 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 I really believe that that's how we as investors have to adapt to the way that markets have changed over the last 11 years. Yeah, Ben, you, you talk about the difficulty to predict, and I think in all the all those systems you describe is that you, you need to uh, need to uh, observe how, how one part of the system affects the other part of the system in order to predict what's going to happen next. And you need that, that additional input of information uh, to understand what's, what's going to happen. And you can't ex ante uh, predict how things are going to take place. Now, uh, you mentioned game theory and uh, you know these games like The Chicken Game or, or, yeah. um, or The Prisoner's Dilemma. The, the game that you spend the most time talking about in your writing uh, is the common knowledge game. Uh, right. For folks who aren't familiar with, with that, with that uh, concept in game theory, what is the common knowledge game? Well, so we're, we're, we tend to be familiar with these, I'll call them two-by-two two games, right, that, that, that are games where uh, you've got, you know, two players, right? You've got one prisoner in one room and one prisoner in another room. Do they, do they rat each other out or do they stay strong and, you know, not rat the other one out, right? A uh, game of chicken. You got you know two guys driving their tractors at each other. Uh, those are fun games, right? And and they can be, I think, illustrative of of real world situations. But look, that's not the game of markets, right? The, the game of markets is not two people. Certainly not the game of public markets. The, the games that drive public markets, and by public markets, it's not just investing; it's also voting. The games that drive public markets, public social markets, are games of crowds. Games of crowds. Not games of individuals. They're games of crowds. And the common knowledge game, it, it, it's an old game. It goes back to John Maynard Keynes, who called it the, uh, the newspaper beauty contest. So, you know, some of your listeners may be familiar with that terminology, the newspaper beauty contest. But if you go on Wikipedia and you type in the common knowledge game, you know, that's, you'll, you'll, you'll get the kind of classic modern game theory approach to it. So the common knowledge game is a game that applies to crowds. And it's, it's as the name implies, it's, well, how does common knowledge, which is what everyone knows that everyone knows, right? <laughs> it's this, it's, it's not... It's not what you as the individual know. It's not what you think that the crowd knows. It's what the crowd thinks that the crowd knows, which sounds a little weird, but if you think about it, it's like, oh, actually, that's, that's what markets are. <laughs> that's what markets are. It's what does the crowd think that the crowd thinks? And, again, this goes back to the 30s to try to figure out, well, you know, how can you get ahead of that? How can you try to figure it out? And the, 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 the answer then, the answer today is what drives the crowd's thinking about what the crowd thinks is driven by what we call in game theory a missionary. So that's a person who gets in front of the crowd and says something can be any sort of kind of information. Does that be truthful, right? But <laughs> really doesn't have to be truthful. It just has to be a piece of information that is said publicly so that the crowd believes that the entire crowd heard that piece of information. And that's the power of celebrity today. That's the power of being a central banker or a politician or a CEO who can get on CNBC. You can get in front of that camera you can get behind that microphone and you can speak and make a statement. And all investors believe that every other investor heard that statement. And then the way the common knowledge game works is that whether or not you as an individual believe that statement, because you think that everyone else in the crowd heard that statement and they might believe it, you, each individual, must act as if you believe the statement. The crowd believes that once the crowd believes something, that they've heard something, that drives the crowd's behavior. It's incredibly powerful. You see it so many times in so many different ways, really throughout history. You know, this, this is why 
uh, hangings used to be held in public, right? Punishments and uh, coronations. This is why coronations still are held in public. It's not so that you can get a lot of people see the poor guy getting hanged or see the you know king or queen get a crown placed on his or her head. No, you have these in public so that the crowd can see the crowd watching these events take place. That's what changes public behavior. It's why even to this day, you know, if you're in China, June 4th every year is the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre, right, where they sent the tanks in and killed the protesters in this big square in, in, in Beijing. Well, to this day, and it's almost 30 years now since, since Tiananmen Square, June 4th is known as Internet Maintenance Day in China, right? Because, you, you know, the, the, you can't even mention that date, uh, and you're going to get a knock on, the, on your door, and you're going to get your social media site and your social credit score and all like that really knocked down. And it's because, to this day, the Chinese government knows that the important thing is not the, whatever, the 100,000 people who were gathered in Tiananmen Square. The important thing is a crowd of a billion people seeing that crowd of 100,000 people in Tiananmen Square. That's what changes the action and the behavior of the billion people. And once you start looking for the stuff, you see it everywhere. Uh, but it's, it, it, it's why narrative is so strong. It's why everybody is in on the act of being a missionary and wants to you know, get behind that, ca- get in front of that camera, get behind a microphone, because it's so powerful in changing crowd behavior through the dynamic of the common knowledge game. Sure, Ben. I, I think. Uh, why do you think common knowledge has become so much more important in the last decade or so? Obviously, there's been cent- there's been you know central bankers, politicians, CEOs, you know, practicing in the economy for you know the entire 20th century. Why is, is, is this influence of narrative on markets, common knowledge on markets, so important today versus, versus in the past? Well, look, some people have always understood this, right? So, so politicians have always understood the power of narrative and speech, right? That's what politicians do. And as technology advances, as the, 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 the power of our microphones and our cameras, right? The, the scope of the megaphones that a, that a missionary can avail themselves of, as, as the technology power has grown, then the impact of being a missionary and common knowledge statements have, have also grown. You know, the other thing is that, well, you know, central bankers, you can say a lot about them, but they're not dummies, and they've looked around and they've seen, wow, this is really effective to use our words to change investor behavior. Much, much more effective than using, you know, open market, um, you know, actions, uh, much more effective than, you know, what we do with our balance sheet. It's been our words and what we'll call forward guidance and what the Fed calls communication policy that's really been effective. You know, you can tell a lot when, when people give their final speech, when they're retiring and they give their last speech. You know, George Washington, his final speech, he said, you know, watch out for alliances. Right? And uh, Dwight Eisenhower, his last speech said, oh, you know, watch out for that, you know, industri- military-industrial complex. I mean, good Lord, if, if, if Dwight Eisenhower is warning you about the military-industrial complex, I mean, I'm going to listen to that. Well, Ben Bernanke, his last speech as Fed chair, he, he went through all this. And he said, look, you know, our toolkits, we, we took interest rates down to zero. You know, that really wasn't enough. We developed this toolkit of, of quantitative easing and, you know, buying stuff and large-scale asset purchases and balance sheet actions. And he said, yeah, I think initially QE1, this was very effective, but after that, eh. And frankly, by the by the time we got to QE3, we, we thought it was counterproductive. But he said, but man, we had this third toolkit that we developed where we would, you know, send all the Fed governors out to do interviews and we'd get everybody on the same page and on the same script and we'd really use our words 
not as a reflection of what we actually think, but to, you know, to to change the listener's behavior. You know, what what you might call lying in other circumstances. And he said, "Wow, this worked like a charm. Man, we love this." So it's 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 this combination, Nick, of uh, technology, really expanding the the scope and power and magnitude of the common knowledge statements, uh, combined with now everyone in a position of power, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a central banker, whether you're anyone, right, understanding how this game works and taking advantage of it for their either own interest or their own, you know, corporate or bureaucratic interests. Sure. You know, we've talked about, uh, you know, how the Fed has played the common knowledge game. You mentioned public company CEOs. I think you look look at the past decade. Uh, there's been a lot of companies that have been very successful in training investors, maybe to not look at uh, profit margins and that sort of thing, and look at other metrics. When you look at uh, CEOs, folks in the public markets playing this common knowledge game, convincing people, you know, how to view uh, different developments around their company, uh, what CEO pops to mind as someone who does this very well? Well, look, I mean, my poster child for this has always been Mark Benioff, uh, the CEO of Salesforce.com. Uh, and, my, the, and the anti-example of this is whoever is CEO of, of IBM at any point in time, right? So the last three CEOs have been the, the world's worst at this. And, you know, really scratch any tech company or scratch any company that's you know, got a big market cap and it's got zero gap earnings and some big multiple. And I promise you, you've got a CEO who plays this game very well. Uh, and look, I, I'm not trying to say it's good or bad. I, I mean, it, it makes me sad, right? But the, the simple fact of the matter is this. What makes a good CEO today? How well can you construct a message? How effective are you at playing the common knowledge game? Right. That, that's what makes a great CEO today. Right? It's not how much you motivate people or your knowledge of the industry or that or, the, or this or that. No, no, no. You know, <laughs> it's the, the secret to great personal wealth and to uh, you know, doing well by your shareholders these days is that skill set of managing narrative. That's job number one, two, and three of any public company CEO today is managing the narrative. Do that well, you're fine. Right? Do that poorly, I don't care how great of a CEO you are in leadership or blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter to a hill of beans. Um, that's, that's the world we're in today. And like I say, it makes me sad, but especially if you know, we're responsible for our own family's money or responsible for other people's money, Look, we got to, we got to play the cards we're dealt, and, and we just have to realize the the game that's being played. And not, you know, you can hate the hate the game, or but don't hate the player. Um, that's that's where we are today on this stuff. Right. I think people are reacting rationally to to the incentives put in place before them. I think you've done some writing here as it comes to to stock buybacks, uh, and you know, in relation to uh, interest rates and that sort of thing, how that's influenced yep. uh, the behavior of, of public companies. Can you kind of unpack some of those thoughts there? Yeah, so, look, I mean, I am not one of these knee-jerk people who hates stock buybacks. Right? I, think, I think most of the arguments against stock buybacks are silly, frankly. Right? Um, when I was running my hedge fund, I loved it when we had a management team that would buy back stock. Uh, we we would we would frequently recommend to management teams, hey, you know, really you're gonna you're gonna use this free cash to make this cockamamie acquisition, really? Why look? Why don't you buy back your stock? Why don't why don't you lever up your own earning stream here? And you know, isn't that a better use of capital than? You know, typically they do they they do an acquisition. It's like, no, oh, come on, man, don't don't do that. Don't. Why would you take that risk and 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 
you know, blow your money on what seems to us to be a stupid acquisition, uh, why wouldn't you invest in yourself, so to speak, right? And and reduce the share count. And um, you know, I, I I would I'm a big proponent of share buybacks. But here's the thing: some companies, and you know, you you can smell them a mile off because they've got to report it. You got to see it. Some companies would use share buybacks not to be shareholder friendly as, or as a use of capital. They'd use it as a way of hiding, of sterilizing the dilution from stock options and stock grants that they were giving themselves. And all public companies would do this a little bit. right? So all public companies would do a little bit of stock buyback to sterilize the um, the shares that they were granting to management, uh, like I say, either through 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 options or through uh, restricted stock units. What has changed today? What has changed dramatically today? What has changed to the point where, frankly, I I, I see the I I see the logic in creating regulatory restrictions on stock buybacks is that stock buybacks have increased in size and scope and scale so much throughout public companies, and they've increased in such a way that has given cover for an enormous escalation in management to grant themselves stock through options and restricted stock units. And as a result, so much of the stock buybacks that you think, oh, they're returning you know, capital to shareholders, good for them, it never reaches the shareholders. It never reaches the shareholders. I mean, I give examples of publicly traded companies where 70% of your you know, billion-dollar stock buyback it ain't buying back stock from shareholders. It's just sterilizing the stock that's been granted or sold for pennies, pennies on the dollar to management. And and that to me, you know, when I was an investor with my hedge fund, man, that's just the lowest of the low, right? You're just you're just enriching yourself. You're you're literally taking that money and putting it in your own pocket when you do that, when you're just sterilizing these massive uh, you know, stock issuances to management. And I find that so much of stock buybacks is now going towards sterilizing stock that goes to management and not going to shareholders. That's what I'm writing about. And, and, and that's something that's, that's you know, it's been around forever, but man, now it's just an epidemic. It's everywhere you look, and that and it, again, it really kind of makes me sad and sick about what's happened to markets. Yeah, well, how how should companies treat treat this this extra capital they have uh, you know differently? Should they be paying their 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 employees in, in more cash? Uh, should they be you know just paying out dividends to shareholders? What, what would be an appropriate use of this cash uh, uh, versus versus you know the the, the criticisms of stock buybacks there? Well, so look, and again, I'm talking about what I am horribly opposed to is using stock buybacks as cover, as a shield behind which you, you management, are enriching yourselves with huge stock awards. The reason we have such big stock awards today is that, yeah, a lot of years ago, we changed the, the, the tax code so that, that companies – couldn't deduct more than a million dollars in cash comp. I think it was a million dollars. It, it, it may have changed a little bit since then, but it's basically a million dollars in cash comp. If you paid your, your your top executives more than that, it wasn't it wasn't deductible. And so that combined with the notion of oh, we're going to give them stock because we have to align the interests of shareholders and management. That's what we need to do, and stock will do that. That's what. Those two things, right, have really led to this this epidemic, pandemic, of insane amounts of stock-based comp masked by 
equally insane amounts of of stock buybacks. So, you know, you gotta you you gotta <laughs> a as an investor, there are still some companies out there that don't do this crap. There really are. There are defined, but they're 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 worth your while to really look up and find. They tend to be the companies with strong boards of directors, boards that haven't been captured by management, boards that are not themselves in on the act by giving themselves lots of big stock grants that are then masked by stock buybacks. I I don't want to restrain those good companies from doing stock buybacks when they want to do them because they're not doing it to 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 mask this really odious practice of of, you know, sterilizing their own stock grants. So I'm kind of at a loss. I mean, I I, I want to tell investors, "Hey, you know, invest in the good companies, the companies don't that don't pull these stunts and avoid the companies that do." The problem being, of course, is that when you're, you know, Microsoft uses about 70% of their billions of dollars of stock buybacks to to sterilize stock-based comp. But because Microsoft is a big part of any ETF, any, you know, indexed holding, you know, there are no active investors that matter for Microsoft. It's just money goes into the market, so it goes into Microsoft. So there's no effective way that I see now from investor behavior to reward the companies that are playing it straight and to punish the companies that are enriching management in what I think are really slimy ways. That's that's a real problem we've got today, and, and I don't know what's possible for investors to do about it. Right, So that's why, I, God help me, I'm open to some sort of regulatory you know, intervention here because I, I, I think as this goes on, it just leads more and more to this enormous wealth inequality that we've got in this country. I, I think it's one of the big drivers of it. You know, I don't begrudge an entrepreneur or a founder or a risk taker from making a hell of a lot of money. You can be a billionaire. Go for it. Good for you. But what bugs the crap out of me is that when you look at the, you know, the assistant controller for Microsoft – and the dude's a you know a deca millionaire from this stuff. He's you look at you look at the fifty people at J.P. Morgan. You know a bank the profits are guaranteed by the U.S. government. You know Jamie Dimon's a billionaire. Okay, that doesn't make me really happy. But what makes me even less happy are his three lieutenants who are centimillionaires, or his you know fifty sub lieutenants who are deca millionaires. All from being bank managers, not from being risk takers, not from being entrepreneurs, not from being founders, from being bank managers of a too big to fail bank, and now they've got generational wealth. So it's literally that you didn't build that, uh, you know, uh, in real life. Um, yeah. 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 Look, I, the people who do build things, you know, the people who build companies and take risk. God bless you, man. I, I mean, you should you should make as much money as you can. I, I, that's what makes the world go round. But just to kind of rise through the ranks, Dennis Muhlenberg, right, the, the, the former CEO, the guy who was just fired as CEO, he was also the chairman of the board of Boeing. It's a perfect example of this. He's a Boeing lifer, right? I'm sure he's a good guy. I'm sure he's nice to, you know, He's nice to his pets and, you know, good with his children. But, you know, he's not a risk taker. He's not a founder. He's not an entrepreneur. You know how much he walked away from Boeing with? A company that, you know, Jesus, if any company has just been destroyed, a corporate culture that's just been wrecked, it's Boeing. You know, he walked away with over $200 million in compensation. $200 $200 million. And man, once you buy a prize, it's yours to keep. There's no there's no clawback here. It's like, bye-bye, bon voyage. Thanks for the memories. $200 million. That's what, that's what galls me today, and, and what galls me even more is that there's, there is no way for any individual investor to do their homework and figure out which are the good companies, which are the bad companies, and have that effort be rewarded in stock price. 
because it just that's not what how markets work today. Right, sentiment so much is driving is driving performance, particularly for these high flying, uh, you know, tech related stocks. You know, when you when you talk about a narrative and how that how that drives uh, businesses, and you talk about uh, management getting a whole boatload of money uh, when they go away after kind of mismanaging the business. It makes me think about uh, WeWork, which obviously is the big collapse earlier this week. And this was one of those companies where I think the narrative really shifted radically from being this super exciting, high-flying startup to, you know, uh, the filings dropped down and folks changed their opinion. So, it makes me think, uh, you know, the question for you then is, Ben, is how do narratives evolve over time? And what, what, what is the catalyst for, for shifting a narrative from, you know, say, gold is, is, a, is, a, is a substitute for, for metal to, you know, gold today is a speculative, speculative metal? How, how, do the, how do these narratives change over time? The common knowledge game, the, the, the best kind of fable you can kind of use to, to give you an example of it, is the emperor's new clothes. Right, the, the old Hans Christian Andersen um, fable, because it's a great example of common knowledge. Right, so so each individual who watch, is watching the emperor, you know, parade down the street, you know, buck naked. They see that with their own eyes. Right, each individual knows. Oh boy, that's this weird. Uh, he's not wearing anything. Uh, but the crowd looks at the crowd, and the crowd is. Thing, uh, we're all kind of watching it. The missionary is the emperor himself. He's saying, no, 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 I'm dressed in my finest outfit. And so the crowd looks at it and says, oh, well, the whole crowd is seeing this, and they're not acting too weird, so I guess I'm just going to smile and go along with it. Until you get another missionary in the fairy tale. It's the little girl who says out really loud so that the whole crowd hears He's naked. Well, that's how stories change, right? It, it requires a missionary to come and create a different common knowledge, a common knowledge that says, oh, actually, Salesforce.com is a silly company that because they've never made a penny of profits and they never will. Um, but until that missionary comes along, Right, the story doesn't break. Stories don't break on their own, is what I'm telling you. You can, <laughs> you know, you can look at price. So, so you know, most of what I did, I, I really ran the short book on our on our hedge fund. And the worst thing you can do as a short seller is is look at, um, well, let's use Tesla as an example. What is it today? Six hundred and fifty dollars. Right? Something like that. Yeah. So you look, you, so you look, you look at Tesla, and you look at, oh, good lord, you know, this company, six hundred and fifty dollars. That's crazy. That's crazy. I want to short it. Let me get a borrow, and I'm going to short Tesla at 650. Right? That's a, that's a dumb short. It's a dumb short, right? Because there, what you what you have to figure out first is what is going to break the Tesla story. What's going to break the story? What what are the Tesla stories? And there are multiple stories. What's going to break them? It's going to require a missionary to come out. Hey, SEC comes out. You know, tomorrow, what what broke the, the Tesla story, you know, call it a year ago, right? It was the SEC saying, um, actually, Elon, uh, we're going to, you know, start an investigation on what you said, and, you know, you've got real issues here. What was the other uh, uh, catalyst? What was the other missionary? Oh, well, we've got these people saying, well, you've got these bond issuance here. How are you going to, uh, you know, how are you going to refinance this company again? Really? What? What? What are you going to do? Right. So you've got missionaries who are who are saying this. The emperor Elon has no clothes. Now, there's always a counter narrative, though. What I'm suggesting is to see the world through the lens of narratives, through the lens of missionaries presenting their stories to you, getting a sense of which missionaries have are more powerful, which have bigger microphones which are more effective in creating common knowledge. And once you start looking at the world that way, then I really think you can become a better investor, both on the long side and the short side. That, that's what I think an individual investor can do, is to train yourself to see the world through this lens of narrative and not only through the lens of fundamentals or momentum or whatever you know, you've been trained to see the world through in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you when you look at, at these narratives and how people are, are writing about different topics, 
obviously the, the, the emergent property of this is all these people that are contributing to this narrative are trying to make an argument. And uh, when you're able to analyze all this together uh, in one holistic whole, you get a view of the population that you can't get from reading any, any individual article. Um, right. What is an important narrative uh, that, that, that folks should be aware of playing out right now, and how is it shaping markets? Oh, so many, right? I'll, I'll give you one. We wrote on it recently. It's the uh, it's the narrative that uh, we need to give new, vast powers to central banks to fight climate change. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a narrative that comes up lots of times in history where we say, oh, you know, this democratic process is so messy there are people here who don't see the threat. And to be clear, I think climate change is an enormous threat. It's man-made. It's, a, it's an enormous threat. I, I'm, I'm not a denier. I'm a believer. But what you see happening is this narrative that, well, we can't solve this through democratic means, so we have to give emergency powers. We have to give the power to tax, the power to punish, the power to spend to unelected, unaccountable central bankers because they can get the job done. And I I see that narrative building. You saw it just the other day. You saw it the other day with Jay Powell in his press conference. He says, yes, yes, the Federal Reserve stands ready to protect the financial system from climate change. I mean, those are words that this central banker actually uttered. And I I think that that it's so problematic, it's so it's so attractive to us again as social animals to gravitate towards that sort of strong man message, strong state message. And you see it on the left and you see it on the right. You see it so much in the, you know, Trump, uh, Trump, you know, MAGA people. You see it so much on the left, again, in this, in this form. And for me, feeling I'm kind of stuck in the middle, this, this is the narrative that I see growing and really gives me a lot of concern. These narratives that want to give power, political power, to unaccountable, unelected people, right? And and you hear it from the left, and God knows you hear it from the right. And, and that's the narrative that I'd like everybody to be on the watch for, because once you, it's like so many of these things, once you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere, and you become sensitized to it, and it doesn't affect you in the same way. That's that's what I'd like people to think about. Yeah, I think, I think you know, along the lines of that narrative, I observe, uh, you know, outside of the financial markets, you can see over, you know, going back probably to the 70s through to today, uh, this growth in, uh, in a, you know, regulatory uh, uh, kind of rulemaking as opposed to, to legislative action, uh, you know, has shifted how, how power has, has been distributed in political markets. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's made uh, Supreme Court nominations much more, much more uh, yep. important. It's made uh, the presidential nomination uh, uh, much more significant. And I think you've talked about in your own, uh, in your own writing about the, the widening gyre that's happening between, between folks uh, in, in politics. So uh, what, what's, what's driving that? Well, ultimately, Nick, what I think drives it is debt. Uh, ultimately, what I think drives it is wealth inequality. I think that these things have been building for decades. I think that they reach a tipping point, to use another game theory term, another equilibrium term. A tipping point is when an equilibrium breaks down and goes into a a non-mean reverting phenomenon of polarization, which is what I think we've got going on here. But yeah, ultimately, I think it's it's the society we've we've created, a society of great wealth inequality, a society of great opportunity inequality, uh, a society of enormous debt, uh, and a society where you know access to capital and the price of capital is so incredibly different depending on who you are and what you do. 
So you know, I, I think that's at the at the root. You ask, you know, what caused all that? I think that's at the root and at the heart of this. Um, and I think that it's again, it is accelerated by the growth of technology to spread and augment these uh, common knowledge missionary statements so much more. And it's augmented by political entrepreneurs on the left and the right who see this as an opportunity to, uh, uh, to do better for themselves in the political sphere. So it, it all comes together, and, and unfortunately, like I say, I, I don't think this is something that just gets better on its own. It's not, a, it's not a mean reverting thing. It's something that goes past the tipping point until you get to a breaking point. And I, I think that can take a lot of different forms. Again, I'm, I'm not predicting, I'm observing. But what, I, what I'm saying is that, is that the, the, the equilibria, and there are multiple equilibria, there are multiple potential balancing points from here. Some of them very dystopian, <laughs> let's say, right? Others, all of them are, are, are painful. But we're heading towards one of those, one of those equilibria, and, and that's what we've got to prepare for as both investors and as citizens. And how does a, a citizen and an investor prepare for this? I think you do three things. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you three it's the same three things, but I'm going to couch it first in negative language, language of resistance, and then I'm going to couch it in positive language. Negative language is take back your vote. Don't vote for ridiculous candidates just because you're told that's what makes you a good Democrat or a good Republican. Ignore them. Take back your vote. Take back your data. Right? Don't participate in systems that require you as a matter of course that – Oh, of course you want to sacrifice your data, your identity, for the sake of this convenience. Don't do it. Take it back. It's yours. It's yours. I'm not saying go live off the grid. I'm saying demand that there are political regulations and restrictions on how your identity, how your data can be taken from you and used against your will. Don't just go along with it. Insist on it. Take it back. And finally, take back your distance. And I mean that both metaphorically and I mean that literally. I mean, I mean by taking back your distance, don't give your autonomy of mind over to the missionaries. Don't believe in your heart of hearts what they're telling you. They're telling you words, narrative stories that they think will influence your behavior. I'm not saying to fight the Fed. I'm not saying fight the man, whatever the man is for you. I'm asking you to realize that they're playing you. you know, there's this old line in poker, right, that if you've been playing for 30 minutes and you don't know who the sucker is, it's you. What I'm saying is don't be the sucker. Just that. Just that. Don't be the sucker. Keep your distance. Take back your vote. Take back your data. Take back your distance. Just do those three things, and your world will change. Now, I'll say these in positive forms, right? I'll say it in the form of make, protect, and teach, right? This notion that's everywhere that to, 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 to live a life well-led, one has to participate in these – one has to participate in these national struggles between national leaders who see you as cannon fodder is absolutely ridiculous, Right? The, the way the world changes is from changing your world, your local world, of mattering to the people and the, the, the institution and the community around you. How do you matter? You can make. Making can be starting a company. Making can be an inventor. Making can be an artist. Making can be any number of things where you are creating. You're a maker. It can be by protecting, right? That's, that's how you, you serve your community, right? You protect. You're, you're, you're a fireman. You're a doctor. You're a, you're a nurse. You're a policeman. You protect. You're a fiduciary. You're a financial advisor with a fiduciary responsibility to your clients. That's protecting. Third thing you do is you can teach. You can write. 
You can speak. You can be a teacher, right? You can you can be a coach. You can do all these things. You can make, protect, and teach these active, positive things you can do in your own community, and that is how, my friend, the world will change. Last thing I wanted to talk with you, Ben, just for fun, because we have it in common, and we're both with Alabama folks. What role does Alabama football play in your life? <laughs> Roll Tide, brother. Yeah. Um, you know, I football, college football in the South, and I think a lot of people share this this sense of identity. That was my religion. That was my civic religion. I I I joke when I say I grew up in the Church of Bear Bryant, but it's not a joke. It really isn't a joke. It, it was it was a form of social communion and participation, and connection, and the weaving together of a community. That I'm I'm hard. I'm, I'm, it's, it's hard for me to um, to think of another corollary other than what I think the role of religion plays for a lot of other people. Right. So my, my grandfather played football there at Alabama, and my uncle played football there. So, you know, we got comp tickets back when, you know, they still do the, that sort of thing. I don't even think they do that anymore. But I, I had so many, you know, learning experiences from it, from you know, driving down to Tuscaloosa and scalping tickets, you know, extra tickets that I had and, you know, learning about markets that way. Let me let me tell you, you you learn about markets and the reality of markets really fast when, you know, you're scalping tickets. And it's it's uh anyway, I'm maybe laughing a little too hard there, but now that was a, a great formative experience. But, you know, more broadly it's it's something that gave me a connection uh, to my father, to my grandfather, to my uncles, uh, it to my brother, uh, it's to my nephew, right, to my daughters who, you know, I've gotten them. They can, they they know how important it is to, to, to root for the tide, which mm-hmm. which is hard, right? I mean, I mean, rooting for Alabama these days, it's, it's like, it's like, Rooting for the Patriots, right? Or it's like rooting for the Death Star and Star Wars. I, I mean, it's I, nobody else, unless you're from there, if, unless you're from Boston or you're from Alabama, everybody's rooting against you, not for you. Uh, but I kind of like that too. Yeah. So it's, anyway, it's a, it's a good form of identity. Yeah. No. It's it, it's certainly. Um, yeah, like the Death Star of college football, the, uh, this, this, this idea that, you know, if you're not a fan, I don't know how you could like uh, um, Alabama football. No, no, <laughs> I'd hate them. I'd hate Alabama if I weren't from Alabama. Uh, absolutely right. I, I think when you look at the culture, too, and I'm sure you experienced this growing up. Of course, I, mean, I actually do hate Auburn. I really do hate Auburn. Uh, you yeah. know, I was front row for the kick six in 2013, <laughs> so that really ossified any, uh, any feelings that I would have had and, uh, the, you know, ossified them in not the, not the best way. Um, but yeah, when you talk about the strength of that culture, right? I mean, I'm sure you're you're around the state when Bear Bryant died. The whole state shut down. Um, you know, the interstate shut down. That sort of thing. Another thing that culturally impacted me growing up in the state. I don't know if it impacted you. Is that uh, there's a lot of uh, you know a little bit of a betting culture, a little bit of a gambling culture. And folks, I heard Danny Sheridan say one time, uh, you know, famous odds maker, that per capita uh, Alabama is the number one illegal sports betting market uh, in the country. Uh, oh, absolutely. Did any of that, uh, how did that, that culture influence you and how you think about markets and, 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 you know, in general? Well, it was really easy for me to think in terms of bets. And you, it, i tell you what it does for you. For one thing, it gives you an immediate, uh, I'll call it numeracy. It gives you a facility with numbers and thinking about the two things that are the only two things that matter in investing, and that's edge and odds, right? Edge and odds is what all of alpha is based on. What's your edge? What's your private information? What are the odds? Edge and odds. And, you know, that's drummed into you really quickly. I mean, when you're playing, you know, um, you know, gin rummy, Hollywood scoring and a penny a point, you're eight years old playing against your, you know, uncle who does this practically for a living at the Lions Club, it, you know, Nothing focuses the mind faster than losing all your Christmas money, you know, because gambling debt's a debt of honor. That's what I was also drummed into me. So, yeah, it's uh, it gives you that sense of quick facility with edge and odds, 
which is so important in any sort of investment or any sort of business activity. So uh, I, I think the, you know, growing up betting on anything and everything, I, I mean, you know, which raindrop is going to, you know, get to the bottom of the pane of glass first, I, I have made that bet before, uh, you know, playing poker all the time and, and, and just learning about people that way, it's all really important. And, uh, yeah, it all, it, it all, it all came out of that in Alabama. Last thing, Ben, just, just going away. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about narratives, a lot about different things that are, that are shaping the market. Uh, if there's just one thing, an individual investor, someone handling their personal portfolio should, should kind of take away from what we've talked about today. What is that? Yeah, it. What I'm not again. What I'm not saying is fight the Fed or fight you know the narrative. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is to be aware there is a narrative. Being aware that you are being played. That whenever you read something, don't take it to heart, but to immediately think, why am I reading this now? What is the purpose behind whoever is publishing this piece of information to me right now? Just do that. Just do that. In investing and in politics, keep your distance. Don't believe it in your heart of hearts, and you'll do so much better. Keep your distance. Why am I reading this now? Don't believe it in your heart of hearts, because they're all they're all trying to play you, my friend. Well, Ben, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show. If folks want to find your stuff, follow you, keep up with with your writing, where can they go do that? Well, look the the, the name of the the website is epsilontheory.com. Uh, the Twitter account, the Twitter handle is at Epsilon Theory. So I'm very consistent here. It's very easy. Just uh, do a search on Epsilon Theory, and you can see on the website where all that comes from, that, that, that name comes from. Uh, that's how you find me. Lots of free stuff. As you can tell, I love to talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm.